Morning, everyone. I uh, imagine many of your homes are cooler than the hall at the moment, so I'm glad that you've decided to face the heat and join us. It's good to be together. It's a week out from Christmas, or just under a week out from Christmas, and we're tackling another Christmas passage uh, so that we're uh, prepared for Christmas. Uh, not just, you know, Chrissy shopping and getting your food and stuff, but prepared, uh, prepared our hearts and our minds to come in worship to our Lord and Saviour. How about I pray, and we'll get straight into this passage. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are so sovereign over all things in control, and you are good to us so that we can gather, we can be together, especially around Christmas. Father, I pray now as we uh, dig into these verses in Matthew chapter 1 that you would reveal to us your glory, you'd show us just how wonderful the birth of Jesus really is, help us to see with fresh eyes just how amazing your plan of salvation is so that we might come to you in worship and in thanks all the more, especially as we head into Christmas. And Father, I pray that uh, you would be uh, merciful and gracious to us now and not heat up this room so much that we can't bear to even listen to me. Amen. Well, uh, my name's Tim, if you haven't met me, it's Tim, Uh, and I didn't always like my name. Uh, Growing up, uh, I I knew a few Tims, some I was a fan of, some I weren't, but there wasn't many Tims. Tim wasn't a super, super popular name, I I knew a handful. Um, I don't know what they felt about their name, but I I didn't really like my name. I couldn't tell you why, I just didn't. But over the years, as I grew up, Tim, Timothy, rather, it grew on me. Timothy grew on me because of what it means. When I found out what Timothy means, I realised that actually I want that to be a challenge for my life. The name Timothy is a Greek name. It's two Greek words mushed together. Uh, The first word is the Greek word timao, right? And that means to honour, all right? And and so the second half of my name, the, uh, comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. So if you're out there learning Greek, there's a couple words for you. And you get those two words, to honour and God, and mush them together, and you have to honour God. But when it's used describing a person, it is the person who honours God. That's what my name means, the person who honours God. And as I've grown up, I've wanted that name to be how my life is described. I want my name to describe my life, not just so that people can call it out in a crowd and they know it's me, but so that... When I'm gone, people say, Timothy, yeah, that really describes his life. It's a challenge to me. I want to be a man who honours God. Now, our names can be very significant. And I love significant names with meaning. And so, when my boys were born, I really wanted names that had meaning. So, Samuel means God has heard. And God has heard me on a lot of different occasions. And I hope Samuel grows up to be someone who hears God and obeys him. Luke, Luke is named after the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, because Luke told people about Jesus in his writing, I hope my Luke tells people about Jesus. He's also named after Luke Skywalker, but Jess isn't here, so she didn't hear that. Names can be really significant, right? Especially when God gives people those names. Happens a few times in the Bible, God gives people names, Uh, Abram was Abram before God gave him the new name, Abraham. Sarai was Sarai until God gave her the name Sarah. And and there are a bunch of times it happens throughout the Bible. Uh, Hosea has children, 
whose names mean not my people and I do not love them. And those names are significant when they get reversed. They're names that God has given. In this passage, we see two names that God gives this little baby boy. The messenger tells Joseph to call the child Jesus. That's the name he was most commonly known as. But Matthew also notes that in Jesus' birth, another name is applied to him, the name Emmanuel. Both names are really significant because of what they mean and they're really significant because God has given this child those names. And so, Matthew, he draws our attention to these names and he's telling us something about this child. As as he gives us these names, he's saying that God has come to his people to rescue them from sin. And so that's the, that's the big thing we need to see today as we look at this passage. God has come to his people to rescue them for sin. But to understand just why that's significant, we need to do a bit of background work. We need to go back into the Old Testament and see just why we need God to come into this world to rescue people from sin. And so we're going to go all the way back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, where God first creates the world and he creates humankind and he places them in the Garden of Eden and at this point humanity wasn't tarnished with sin, they were pure and clean and so they could be in relationship with God and in fact they were made to be in relationship with God. You see a hint of it in Genesis 3 where uh, God is walking through the garden in the cool of the afternoon and it kind of gives you a hint that that's something he regularly did with Adam and Eve, that God was with his people in the garden. But that all uh, turned south when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they became tarnished with sin, they became impure, so that the pure God couldn't be with impure humanity anymore. And they had to leave God's presence. Genesis 3, 22 and 23 says, uh, this is after... Uh, man has disobeyed God and God's given punishments out to the serpent, the woman and the man. And it says this, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Am I speaking too loud? What happened was, Adam and Eve, they were allowed in the garden and being part of the garden, they had the blessing of being with God and they had the blessing of the tree of life. They could eat from the tree of life and live forever with God. But now that they'd been tarnished and made impure by sin, they had to leave the presence of God and God in His mercy doesn't let them live forever in that tarnished way, so He denies them access to the tree of life. When sin enters the world... We are cut off from God. His absolute purity can't stand to be in the presence of our impurity. But also, we're destined for death now. Death has entered the world. We will die one day. There's no escaping it. And there's, there's a, it's a really clear just how pure God is and just how far we are from Him when he gives humanity a system and practices to even come anywhere near him. 
So in the temple or in the tabernacle that preceded it, uh, what you have is this system which God set up for his people, the Jews, Israel, to come close to God, to approach God. But they couldn't be in God's presence all the time. And to even uh, get into any of the inner layers, they had to purify and cleanse themselves. They had to uh, make sacrifice for their sin just to scrub up enough to go in in some of the layers near God. And only ever once a year could one person ever go into the most inner layer where God was, the Holy of Holies. And if that person hadn't followed the proper rituals and practices and sacrifices to clean themselves up appropriately to enter God's presence, they would die because God is so absolutely pure. Did you know that the, the water used in the manufacture of microchips is so pure that it's lethal? This water, it's used to wash the dyes that the silicon microchips are, are made on. If there's even a grain of sand in that water, it would be catastrophic. It would cause thousands and thousands of dollars of damage to their product. If there's dissolved minerals, it would be chaos. It would cause huge damage. And so this water needs to be absolutely pure, as pure as we can make it. But the problem is, if you drank water so pure, it would draw out all the minerals in your body that you need to live. It's so pure, it doesn't absorb into our body, it draws impurities out into it and we would die. It's lethal purity and that's what God's presence is to sinful humanity. It's lethal purity. God is so absolutely pure that humanity can't even get close to His presence without His purity destroying us. And so, all that is to say is that sin has separated us from God and sin has destined us for death so that we are completely hopeless. And it's into that context that Matthew writes these verses. And so, uh, make sure your Bibles are open. Come with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to spend the rest of our time pretty much here. In Matthew chapter 1, we meet the man Joseph... He's uh, going to be marrying Mary, but she's pregnant. Being pregnant before marriage is scandalous, and so Joseph, he decides to end it. It's perfectly within his rights to do so. But uh, being a righteous and upright man, he doesn't want to shame Mary publicly, which he also has the right to do. But instead, he opts for a quiet divorce. And so after Joseph's made up his mind about this, he goes and has a nap got to think hard about these things, so he goes and has a nap and an angel appears to him in his dream and the angel announces a plan. The angel announces God's plan that Joseph should, in fact, marry Mary because this baby that's inside Mary is from God. Matthew repeats it over and over. Uh, uh, Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that caused Mary to conceive. This baby is from God, not from Mary uh, going around and, uh, you know, through infidelity and, and adultery and things like that. No, this, this baby is from God. And so Joseph is to take this child as his own. As the angel tells Joseph to marry Mary and to give the boy a name, that's all symbolic for 
Joseph, this child is to be your child. You are to raise him as if he is your own. He is to have the same lineage you have. You, you may have skipped most of Matthew chapter 1 in the past before because it's a lit, long list of names. But what it does is it connects the man Joseph to King David, to Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith, or, or the father of the Jewish faith, rather. And so, the angel says, Joseph, as you raise this boy as your own, you're connecting this boy to your whole ancestry, to King David, to Abraham. You're to take him as your own. And then Joseph obeys what the angel commands and he goes and he marries Mary and and the child is born and uh, he gives him the name he's told to give him. But there's this interesting moment in verses 22 and 23 where Matthew kind of pauses the narrative. He just kind of steps aside from the narrative for a moment and interprets what's going on for us. Did you notice it? Draws you out of the story for a second because there's something really important he wants to point out. Look at verses 22 and 23. Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew recognises that in Jesus' birth, Scripture is being fulfilled. This is from way back in Isaiah chapter 7, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And Jesus' birth fulfills this word from Isaiah. Because Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this was planned for so long ago, this is actually God coming to us. And so he's given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And that means God has come to his people. And that's my second point today, is God has come to his people. We can't get to God, so he has come to us in the birth of this boy. God becomes a man. The utterly transcendent God, so completely other from us. The holy God of the universe, who's so pure that the impurity of sin can't even bear to be in its presence, in his presence. The one who flung the stars into the sky and upholds every uh, molecule and atom in the whole universe together. He has come to us in this child. But, but God is God, right? He's too pure to slum it with us. How is that possible? Doesn't that make God less God? That he, that he could even uh, think of the idea of slumming it with us? Well, the problem is we couldn't get to God. We were without hope. There's nothing we could do, nothing we could offer, no rituals or practices that we could do to make us ever good enough to even draw close to Him. And so God has to come to us. Without God coming to us, there is no way for what happened in the Garden of Eden all those years ago to be made right. And so God comes to us. He gets His hands dirty in creation. He experiences humanity. He suffers like us. He hungers and thirsts like us. He feels pain. He feels stress and anxiety, which you see the night before he dies, right? If you want to see a picture of stress and anxiety, look at Jesus' prayer there. He feels the sadness of death when he witnesses his friend Lazarus lying in the tomb. But what he also does is he lifts us up out of these sad human experiences. Have you ever heard of the TV show Undercover Boss? 
It's an American show. It's been going for a long time. There's about a bajillion episodes. The, the whole idea of Undercover Boss is the CEO of a big company, they'll put on a disguise and they'll go work in their own company for uh, a week or so. But they'll go work on like the lowest level. So they'll go work on the production line or they'll go work in shipping or they'll go do some manual labour for their company. And no one realises the boss is actually this new employee working. And so everyone treats them like the newbie, you know, they have to go do all the dodgy jobs and stuff like that. Uh, what they do is they experience what life is like for the everyday employee. And usually what happens is, you know, while the, the boss is uh, meeting the people that, that work for him, he meets people with a really sad story. You know, that they have to care for their dad every moment they're not at work and life is just really stressful. Or uh, they have medical bills that they can't pay and their debt is just growing and growing and they don't see any way out of it. Or, or they want to send their kids to college. It's an American show, so, so you have to pay for your kids to go to college. Uh, but they can't make ends meet. So there's no hope that their kids will ever go to college. And, and the, you know, the CEOs, they listen to these stories and they're moved by them, or well, at least the producers make you think they're moved by them. And at the end of the time when you know, they rip off their disguise and they're like, oh, it's me, the CEO, and they're talking to the employees that they've worked together with for a week, that they go up to that person with that really sad story and the CEO always says, I'm going to send your kids through college or I'm going to pay for all your medical bills. I'm going to give you that vacation you desperately need and I'm going to give you five grand to spend while you're on it. They, they always experience what it's like to be an everyday labouring employee in their organisation and then they lift those who are struggling in it up. And that is exactly what Jesus does when he comes to us. He experiences what life is like here. He knows our pain and our suffering. He knows our sadness and he comes and he lifts us up out of it. That is Jesus. That is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come to us when we couldn't go to him. He has experienced life with us and he lifts us out of it. Now, the way he lifts us out of it actually comes with the other name we see in this passage and we'll come back to that. But first, I want to take a moment to think about what this means for us. If God has come to us when we couldn't go to Him, how does that shape our lives? How does that change our lives? Because it does. We had no way of getting to God. So does that mean we should just ignore God completely? Absolutely not. He's come to us. We can't ignore that. But that means we can only know God in the way He has come to us. If we can't get to Him anyway ourselves, then the only way we can come to God is in the way He has come to us. We can only approach God on His terms and not on ours. And so if we search for God in anywhere other than the man Jesus Christ, then we will not find God. If we go anywhere outside of God's Word for us in Jesus and in Scripture, we will not find God at all. Those who look for... Um, kind of a spiritual experience outside of Jesus, they are lost. Those who look for God in nature, Romans 1 tells us, you can discern some of God, but not enough to come to Him and be saved. They are lost too. Now, if that's you, if you're searching for God and you've searched everywhere, come to Jesus, listen to Him, meet Jesus 
in the book of Matthew. Maybe this week in the lead up to Christmas, you could read the book of Matthew. It's not too long. If you devote half an hour to reading it each day, I'm sure you'll knock it over. It won't take too long to get through. But come meet God through Jesus, because that is where God has come to us. He's made himself known through his Son. Now, if you're here and you've already met Jesus, can I say, well, then now you don't move on to anything else, right? God still has only come to us in his Son, so we don't meet Jesus and, and move on to some greater form of knowing God. No, no, we only ever know God through his Son, Jesus. And so we stick with Jesus. We don't then move on to some other kind of experience or some other tradition or... No, no, we stick with Jesus because that is where God meets us. In this little baby boy, born 2,000 years ago, resting in a feeding trough. Why would we go anywhere else when he has come to us, right? But what did Jesus come to do? He hasn't just come to experience humanity. It's not been like his gap year where... He goes across the world and experiences other cultures and comes back and and that's it. No, no, he's actually come to do something. He's come to save humanity. Jesus has come to rescue us from sin. That's the last point today. That's the last thing I want you to realise. And we see it really clearly in the name Jesus, which the angel gives the boy. Look with me at verse 21. So the angel has said, uh, Joseph, no, no, uh, Mary, Mary, uh, this child has been, uh, uh, this child is conceived from the Holy Spirit. And then he says, she'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin. You give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And that makes perfect sense if you know what the name Jesus means. Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means... God saves. Jesus means God saves. Uh, it, it literally means Yahweh saves, but Yahweh in the Old Testament is what, is what Israel called God. It means God saves. God will save. <clears throat> Excuse me. Israel knows that God saves, right? It's all throughout their history. From uh, when they are rescued out of slavery in Egypt, throughout all their history up to Jesus, God has saved them over and over from different threats and dangers and enemies. So Israel know that God has saved. Israel know that God is a saving God and Israel are expecting God to do another mighty saving, another mighty rescue. He's going to save them. Many of them expected that God would save them from the oppression of Rome and and Israel once again be a great nation and and there's a nationalistic salvation. But that's not the salvation the Bible talks about. And And we met the salvation the Bible talks about when Serena read Psalm 130 for us. So keep a finger in Matthew chapter 1 and flick back to Psalm 130. Psalms are not easy to miss in your Bible. If you crack open to the middle, you find Psalms and just look for 130th one. So Psalm 130, let me read the last two verses of this Psalm for us. Israel, put your hope in the Lord For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The salvation that God promised is salvation from sin. The very thing that that separates us from God and, and makes us so impure, we can't bear to be in his presence. The very thing that invites death into our lives 
That means death is inescapable. That is what God will rescue His people from. That is the salvation we can expect. But how does He redeem us from our sin? How does He rescue us? It's about forgiveness, which we see in the same psalm in verse 4. I'll read from verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If God keeps a record of our sin, there's no possibility that we could ever come near to God and have any relationship with Him because we are so impure compared to His purity. But, verse 4, the Lord is... No, that's the verse. But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. How does Jesus rescue us from sin? He brings forgiveness. He brings forgiveness. When we've rebelled and wronged Him, He brings forgiveness. The other night, I was sitting down to give uh, my one-year-old dinner. He, he has this little plate, his plate has Batman on it, uh, and, and I put it on his tray so that he could start eating his food, and I turned around to grab a drink of water. I hear crash. And I look back, and all over the floor is this full plate of food, upside down, everywhere. And it wasn't like, you know, here's a bit of cheese, here's a bit of crackers, it's dry stuff. No, no, it was this like kind of soupy dinner that was everywhere. And I was pretty angry, right? A whole plate of food, he hadn't even started eating it, on the floor, wasted. Jess had worked hard to make sure he had lots of different kinds of food that he will definitely eat, all over the floor, wasted. And I I was upset, I was angry. Now, I know he didn't do it to be naughty, He's just like exploring things, like the edge of his tray. I know he didn't do it to provoke a response from me, but I was angry about it, right? He wasted a whole plate of food. There's a huge mess I had to clean up. But here's the thing, there's nothing that Luke could do about my anger. There's nothing he could do. He couldn't hop down and clean it up. He couldn't get himself some more dinner. He just kind of had to sit there. There was nothing he could do. There was no way for him to deal with the issue. The only thing that could be done about my anger was to forgive. That was the only thing that I could do about my anger. Well, that was the only right thing I could do about my anger. There's plenty of wrong things I could have done about my anger. And so that's what I had to do. I had to forgive Luke and get on my hands and knees and start scrubbing up this floor. And that's exactly what it's like with God. Except we have rebelled against God maliciously. We have done it uh, on purposely. We we may not uh, realise on the surface that what we're doing is rebelling against God. But deep down, we know that we're rebelling against God. That's what Romans 1 tells us. That everyone has seen God's invisible qualities in creation, yet we have turned from Him to idols and rejected Him. And so we need forgiveness. There's nothing we can do. We can't make ourselves right with God. We need forgiveness. And that is why Jesus has come. That is why Christmas is such good news. Because at Christmas, when God enters the world, Jesus goes on a journey to bring us forgiveness. He lives the life we could never live. Perfect obedience to God. He heads to the cross, dies the death that we couldn't die, well, we could die, but we'd stay dead. And we couldn't pay for anyone else's sin, we can only pay for our own. So he dies to take the punishment I deserve, and you deserve, and anyone else who trusts in Jesus deserves. 
and he doesn't stay dead, he defeats death and he rises back to life for our forgiveness. Jesus lives so that he might bring forgiveness and when we're forgiven, then we can come near to God. When we're forgiven, then we can be in God's presence because there's no more sin, there's no more tarnishing right? When God looks at us now, He doesn't see the record of our sins, He sees the perfect life that His Son lived for us. Christmas is so significant and so important for us because it is a huge step in God's rescue plan for us. It is God entering into this world for the first time as a man so that that man might die for us. And so, this Christmas... If you haven't yet, won't you accept the life that God offers you? Won't you entrust your life to Jesus and seek forgiveness? There's nothing that you or I could ever do. We're just the baby in the high chair who spilled their food everywhere. We can't do anything about it. God has to and He has. And so, come to Jesus and seek forgiveness. Now, for many of us, we've already done that. And that's wonderful, that's absolutely worth celebrating. But we know so many people who haven't yet, our friends, our family, people who I'm sure will share a meal with over Christmas or, or over the coming weeks after as we you know, continue to celebrate the weirdness between Christmas and New Year's, our neighbours, our kids, friends, parents. We know people who haven't accepted the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And my prayer for this church is that we'd be a church that mourn for those people, that are moved that their destiny at the moment is death. And so we'll stop at nothing to offer them life. I was really excited here last weekend that uh, many of us had uh, Christmas parties or meetings in the park or thing where we invited not just people from church to join us, but people from outside of church to join us so that we might build relationships with them with each other, so that as we live the life that God has called us to live, as we hold out the forgiveness that Jesus offers, they might see that Christians aren't all weirdos, Christians are people who celebrate life in Jesus. It was so exciting to see that you were on mission, that you were um, engaging with people outside of church because you love them and want them to come to Jesus. And, and, you know, every time you meet up with them, you're not going to go, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. No, no, you might be taking little steps. So maybe last weekend when, when you met with someone in the park or at your house, uh, you didn't talk about Jesus, but that's okay. You showed the love of Jesus so that next time you could invite them to Christmas or you could invite them to summer series and things like that. But I do pray that we would be a church on fire for the gospel, that we so trust the power of the gospel that, which saved us that it could save our friends, our family, our neighbours, our co-workers, our taxi drivers, our baristas, our, our whatever. I pray that uh, we would stop at nothing, no matter how hard it is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, how costly it is, how long it takes, that we would keep offering the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of forgiveness to these people in such a way that they might accept it. That's what I pray for us. I pray it every week on a Thursday morning. I pray that we would be on fire for the gospel. Because we were stuck in sin. We were headed for death without hope, no way to be with God. Until God came to be with us. 
to offer us forgiveness, to offer us hope. He entered the world to save us. And we get to celebrate that this week at Christmas. Wouldn't it be wonderful to celebrate that with others who haven't yet accepted Jesus? How about I pray? Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have done what we could not do. You have made your way to us so that we could be with you. You you have made your way to us so that you could offer forgiveness for our sin. Father, help us to never turn aside from Jesus, to always come to you through him. And help us, Father, to, knowing that we've been forgiven, offer that forgiveness to others, to point people to your Son, to his death for them, so that our friends, our family, our colleagues, our peers, our whoever, might know the forgiveness and the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen.